a few days ago in a movie theater not far away. It is a period of civil unrest. Upset fanboys, striking from behind their keyboards, have managed to lower the Rotten Tomatoes score of director Abrams' latest craft. Agents of Ryan Johnson have infiltrated the fanbase, claiming vindication over previous installments and igniting a fierce battle over which of the leaders was the proper choice. Meanwhile, hordes flock to the archive of our own, rewriting the sacred texts in an attempt to alter canon and prevent the triumph of sudden and unwarranted ships. With the adventure building to an exciting climax, four heroes gather in a recording studio to discuss the fate of the universe. Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. As you may have guessed, we will be discussing the cinematic experience of the season, an installment in a beloved franchise eagerly anticipated by critics and fans alike. We are, of course, going to be talking about cats. So, everyone, what was your jellical sona? No? No. Okay. Obviously, (laughs) we are going to be discussing Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. We are joined today by two passionate fans of the saga, Libertarianism.org's director and editor, Aaron Ross Powell. Hey. And attorney and Star Wars super nerd, Nicholas Armstrong. Hi. So, Nick, Aaron, at the climactic moment of the film, I should say, spoiler warning, we're going to spoil the film. We should change the name of the show to spoiler warning because <laughs> yeah. we're going to spoil everything. Uh, but at the big moment in the film when the Sith starship fleet has risen from the wastes of the planet Exegol and resistance fighters have seemingly fought to the end all they could and suddenly to save the day, this huge fleet of resistance allies arrives to save the day. A First Order officer turns to General Pride and says, this isn't a navy. It's just people. Do you think the rise of Skywalker and the Star Wars saga in general intentionally tries to send the message that normal people who care enough about standing up against tyranny and oppression are enough to make effective change? And do you think it does that successfully? Yes and no. Um, so yes, I think that's that is a core part of the message that you have you have in the prequel trilogy these governing institutions that turn into an empire, um, and then the original trilogy is about the plucky band of just people coming together, forming friendships, and then through that conquering and retaking over the galaxy, and then you get this line in. Rise of Skywalker, it's just people. That said, I think it's more ambivalent because, well, we don't know all the details about what happened between the original trilogy, the the Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. It seems like those just people who overthrew the Empire in Return of the Jedi didn't do a great job once they got power (laughs) (laughs) and things turned out rather poorly, not just because the First Order came in, but it seems like what we pick up about the New Republic from the movies and then also from the the secondary material, the novels and comics and so on, is that it wasn't terribly effective and that the reason that they needed this fleet of just people is because the governing institutions failed to protect them. And these were the institutions that were set up by these plucky rebellion fighters in the beginning. So I think it's more complicated than quick story about individuals coming together and solving things. I agree. It, it almost seems like it wants both ways uh, and that it's it's about – especially in like the prequels even, you, you go back to like the, the Jedi being sort of subsumed into the state and then becoming these big state actors and that leads to their fall in some ways and they're rescued by just people. But then you have that sort of cyclical problem again where – like dynastic issues. It's not just people. It's the powerful, like the oligarchs. So in in some ways, The Last Jedi undercuts its own message. And then The Rise of Skywalker does the same problem. It's like, hey, <laughs> it's, it's Ray from nowhere, Ray from the resistance, <laughs> Ray from the Palpatines. And you're like, oh, uh, 
okay, who are these just people? Well, I was also thinking, just as Aaron was saying that too, like the resistance before The Force Awakens, we obviously don't know exactly what happened and the system they set up didn't do all that well. But um, where it's almost like they got, they won and they got the power they wanted. And then once they had that power, they had no idea what to what to do with it like they're they were under the mindset that oh we can do better than they did or we're fight good versus evil right that that comes back through the entire saga but once they were given that power they had no real conception of how they were going to do it successfully just that they could do it better um and obviously there's a lot of holes but i think that that's probably part of it it's like an Occupy sort of movement <laughs> where it's like we know we want to fight against something, but we don't really have a clear set of goals or things we want. We know we just want to overthrow something. Uh, one thing that I noticed, uh, and I'm not sure if this is just because of the the sort of the rebellion winning. This is sort of throughout a lot of the galaxy that we see in the Star Wars I wanted to say universe, but I guess it's just a galaxy at this point, <laughs> um, is you have like these planets that are seemingly somewhat – they seem isolated at least on their planets and they function almost like city-states that, that almost govern themselves. But they're all part of this like galactic alliance and I'm sure I'm getting some of the politics of this this world wrong. I have not consumed as much of the extended universe. So please uh, don't correct me on Twitter, whatever. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to admit that I have no idea what I'm talking about in that regard. But – a lot of these city-states, while there are some more opulent and well-to-do ones that have a lot of technology, there's a lot that aren't run particularly well and that isn't fixed when the rebels overthrow the empire. Um, but I also think that, that those sort of stakes are what makes the original trilogy more exciting to me than the new ones. Um, it's it's characters like they introduce fleetingly in The Rise of Skywalker like Zori Bliss is I think how you say her name. She was one of the most interesting characters to me because she is you know someone like a like a Han Solo or something sort of in that she's existing in a more like CD is the wrong word but she's she is a less powerful actor fighting against much more powerful forces so the stakes are raised and that to me is much more compelling and emblematic of the struggles of everyday people that we can relate to than uh like the original trilogy where the Jedi order this quasi state group is fighting against another like like the Sith coming back. So I guess my question is is just do you agree? Do you find that those stories are more exciting or lean more into that message that that complicated style of uh of fighting power? I I guess I think there's a there's a problem with world building that makes it so that when you when you see a particular instance like her um and you know you know what the stakes are right there you know you can see this occupying force on her planet and there we see shots of them of stormtroopers rounding people up um and she tells you that she's fighting against them we immediately know that and i think that's one of the problems with the sequel trilogy is we're not really clear what the dynamic is so the original trilogy does this very well the original trilogy has very little detail in its world building it doesn't tell us much but we get it right off the bat through kind of clever shortcuts. So we know what an empire is. So when you call it the empire, we know it's an empire and we know what a rebellion is and that opening shot of New Hope gives us that sense of scale. So it's, you know, we we know that there's these little guys and then there's this enormous thing that's coming after them, this Star Destroyer that takes forever to cross the screen and that just gives us this visual clue that, OK, this this is the scale difference between these things and we've called this one the Empire, which means that they probably control lots of stuff so we don't have to spend our time showing you them on different planets and kind of the scope of things because we just we just get it and we can fight against it and the iconography tells us these guys are evil and these guys are good and so on um, and then we can run with the story. I think the problem with the sequel trilogy is that we never have a good sense of what the galaxy 
looks like. So we never have we we kind of think like is is the first order a insurgency on the periphery that's just hitting some small planets or is it the empire that's taken over everything and sometimes it looks like one sometimes it looks like another um the we know that there's a new republic and we know that there's a new republic senate um and that leia was involved in it somehow but then there's this resistance which looks just like the rebellion and <laughs> and what's their relationship and they seem to be like they just are a ragtag group of ships, but why? If there's an entire, you know, interplanetary government behind them, and and so we have no idea what the real stakes are at any given time, and so then we latch on to these little stories where it's very clear. But but I think the overall sequel trilogy is hurt by not having that clarity that we get in you know just the opening crawl plus opening scene of. A new hope. Well, I also think the original uh, trilogy has, like Aaron was alluding to, like a very obvious, like David and Goliath type story that everyone can see. Whereas, I, at least when I was watching um, the sequel trilogy, I was it was very unclear who was on what team and like what, how big were these? Like Aaron was just saying, how big these teams were, and almost to the extent like. I was trying to think, like, is this an important scene or is this an important scene? Because I wasn't sure, like, what parts were adding to the story or what or even what characters I sh should think are important, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's like, I want to watch Star Wars. I don't want to watch Game of Thrones. I mean, I want to watch <laughs> Game of Thrones. Well, I did. But but I, I come to Star Wars with a certain set of expectations. And maybe that's me as being a lazy viewer. But I also think that's part of the charm of the series is some of that clear shorthand that we see that you are referencing. Well, and they, they developed that in the, the original trilogy, but those brief mentions of uh, like the dissolution of the Senate. It's right up front. We're getting rid of the Senate. The emperor's on his own. The last vestiges of Republic are gone. You don't even have to know there was a Republic to know, oh, getting rid of a Senate's a bad thing. Right. <laughs> or like there are stormtrooper checkpoints in the city and, you know, they kill a bunch of people and then they blow up a planet. And you're like, oh, this is a big bad. And in the sequel trilogy, you have to consume all this additional media to find out like huge sections of the most developed worlds are defecting in between movies. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I, I found what, that out two days happening. ago. <laughs> Good to know. Probably like, oh. would have enjoyed some things more. Well, that would have made more sense to like why everyone's panicked and no one's showing up when they ask for help and like, oh, there's dynamics at play and, you know, Leia's ability to build a coalition's hurt because everyone found out that she's Vader's daughter. So everyone's very, you know, worried about her. All elements that are great and interesting, uh, but not in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I am on record as not liking <laughs> The Last Jedi much at <laughs> all. Uh, and to the point that it like – it basically soured me on Star Wars and I stopped consuming all the secondary stuff. I actually like genuinely forgot that Solo was coming out until it basically did. Um, and I rather <laughs> – I rather liked it. Solo. Um, and so I went into Rise of Skywalker with rather low expectations. Um, and absolutely loved it. Um, and I guess I'm one of the very few who absolutely loved it. But it made me dislike structurally The Last Jedi even more. And part of the reason for that is that The Last Jedi, Force Awakens sets up this new status quo for us, but it leaves a lot of it unexplained. Um, and a lot of the problem with Rise of Skywalker is that tons of stuff is coming at you kind of out of the blue. Right, like, oh, Palpatine is, you know, and oh, the First Order has taken over, and you don't, it's, it, you haven't heard about any of this before, and that's all because nothing happens in the Last Jedi from a universe <laughs> and world building perspective. That, like, the fact that the Rise of Skywalker can basically pretend that the Last Jedi never happened and it works is because nothing happened in the Last Jedi. The movie, like, we're at exactly the same point at the end of it as we are at the beginning of it, and it's done nothing to fill in any of those details. And so, I think that had J.J. Abrams done all three. Um, or had The Last Jedi made an effort to be a middle segment of a trilogy, you could have, say, dropped the whole thoroughly mediocre Finn C plot of going to the, the casino planet and Aww, all that. that I like Finn. That contributed nothing to the movie. <laughs> I like Finn, but that plot was nothing. And you could have instead used that as like, 
oh, there are rumors of something happening in the outer regions and we're going to start looking into it. And then the movie at the end – because we it's not like the reveal of Palpatine is a spoiler for Rise of Skywalker because it tells us in the opening crawl that he's back. So you could have ended Last Jedi with like them just like, oh god, Palpatine is back. And so you could have been using that movie or half of that movie as world building to establish more of that and make it feel more coherent so that we went into the last movie with a stronger sense of what's going on. And you could have been showing things like planets defecting and so on. But The Last Jedi just wasn't interested in doing that. Then again, you know, in the in the third act of The Force Awakens, we basically just do another Death Star rather than build those elements of challenges that are ahead or you, you have a, a very good movie in The Force Awakens up until it loses steam attacking a planet that a very strange sequence. <laughs> right. It's like when, when I was watching the Twilight movies in order every <laughs> night and I skipped Twilight Eclipse and didn't notice until I'd finished Breaking Dawn Part 2. <laughs> Basically the same concept. <laughs> you just got to get to the Volturi and figure it out. Twilight coming next month on no, Pop and Lock. I'm not ever going to agree to that. Anyway. Okay. I, I think – I mean you're right about that that ending of um, – Force Awakens, and I think I think that would have been stronger if you could have done exactly the same thing. Of you know, what we need to do is have the First Order mount a crippling attack. Sure, um, you could have done that in a much more interesting way with them, say, mounting a terrorist strike on is it Hosnian Prime yeah. um, on the Senate and blowing it up with like people who infiltrated or something like that. That looked more like the kind of insurgency that it's supposed to be, and it would have worked just as well for getting those plot points across, just as well for causing catastrophe in the galaxy without having the Star Killer base, which is silly, and the ending sequence, which is silly. Um, and it would have teed up what happened later mm-hmm. much better. Well, because the first time we find out about the scale of uh, the First Order is the first, I think, first line of The Last Jedi, which is, the First Order reigns. And you're like, oh, it's been like <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> like, Do they? And that was quick. But, you know, it, it appears now in the sequel trilogy, the hyperspace situation is very teleporty. Because uh, I think the, the Rise of Skywalker takes place in 16 hours, which is very fast. <laughs> I Wow, I would not yes. have said that. <laughs> Geography's always been weird in Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but yeah, it like the rapidity with which they're able to just give them place to place is is strange. And that goes back to I mean, we get that in the Force Awakens too, of like you have no sense of the scale of things because suddenly the we've just blown up planets that seem to be in the core from somewhere way out here and and people in between can like see it happen it's like it doesn't make any sense at all (laughs) and then in this movie there is a hidden sith planet that we can map the entire galaxy amazing technology and everyone's just like we don't know where it is well but that's teed up in um is it attack of the clones well we have it also with last jedi with the planet actu is missing actu and camino I mean, you can't yeah. blame me for not listening to it during Attack of the Clones. <laughs> of all things. If I think we can all agree that, like, of all the Star Wars films, Attack of the Clones goes to the bottom of the I list. I have only seen that twice. So. I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. Okay. Absolutely. It's unwatchable. <laughs> well, kind of going back to what Aaron was saying earlier about the if we had set up the Pal- Palpatine at the end of um, The Last Jedi instead, it also would have identified a th- the threat a little bit more or the, the, gravity, the gravity of the threat. Also, I kind of want to just go back. Does anyone ever really die? Like, can we ever be sure that someone is dead and gone? Because not that Palpatine was like not a spoiler that, oh, he's back. Like, I think a lot of people were sensing that was going to be it. But – I don't know. There's just no, there's no, like, you can't rely on death in, in this world up. at all. Like, <laughs> he fell into the Death Star. Like, uh, I just don't, no one dies. That was my favorite part of Rise of Skywalker was having Palpatine uh. come back. Uh, and here's, here's why. So this, let me get to my, I think a lot of the criticisms of the sequel trilogy, which is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and there are all sorts of ways it could have been improved. Um, but one of the one of the criticisms is that people I don't think understand the role that it plays in the Star Wars story. That a lot of people saw the Force Awakens and then the, the later movies as these are just 
basically more episodes of this ongoing TV show and I want to see something new. And that's not what they were. What they are is this was always conceived as a nine-movie single-story sequence. And so these are the final third act of a single story that began – I mean how you order them, but it began with the original trilogy and then had the flashback of the prequel trilogy and then on to the concluding trilogy. And our antagonist for that entire story is Palpatine. And the entire story is about the struggle between Palpatine trying to bring the dark side to ascendancy and the light side fighting back and this effort to balance the two. And so to introduce a brand new protagonist in the final chapter of a nine-chapter book wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, and, and so thematically bringing him back is, is what fits because he's been our antagonist all along. And and then even having Ray be his child and having this story be about her establishing herself kind of outside of his bloodline fits because Star Wars the, the twin themes of Star Wars from all along have been about have been redemption and have been family. And it's always been the saga of like because the prequel trilogy tees it up, Star Wars is a conflict between Skywalkers and Palpatines. And it begins with a Palpatine turning a Skywalker, but that Skywalker's – the key element that leads to him turning is a act of forbidden love that produces these children that then are the thing that take down the Palpatine side. Um, and so for Ray to be the child of that and and the further – like so a lot of – I saw a lot of Christmas like this – the Rise of Skywalker kind of pushes aside Anakin's legacy. But it doesn't because it's his children and grandchildren. Like it was so it's it's the ongoing effects of that act of love made all of this possible. And then the the balance comes in our antagonist, the Skywalkers, and our protagonists, the Palpatines, coming together and kind of setting things aside, which is the the final moment with Kylo Ren turning back to Ben Solo and the kiss and him dying and then her taking the Skywalker name is kind of the dissolving of these two family lines into the single balanced force. And so I think it's it was necessary and you wouldn't have gotten that arc if we had looked at these sequel movies more as just like a new season of a TV show that has a new big bad. I would I would agree with that. I think well, just on the onset this whole saga has a lot of family problems like I don't think I've met a family that Who has many. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but with that aside, I think Aaron's right. Like, if they would have introduced a new enemy in the last movie, everyone would have been like, "What the heck? Like, where did where did the, where did these people come from?" And it would have left us even more angry. I was not necessarily a, a fan of Rise of the Skywalker, but I do see how it tied together the sequel trilogy quite nicely, tying up a little, a few loose ends, leaving still some holes. But I was kind of, did you guys expect Ray to be a Palpatine? I had hoped she wouldn't be. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of fan theories going back to the beginning where, you know, here's how it worked, but the timelines don't make a ton of sense. Like, I guess it'd be late Chancellor Palpatine. He'd have their kids and then she's 20 in the show. Kylo's 30. Uh, so I guess the, the, <laughs> the timeline matching up is a very old Chancellor Palpatine having a child and they abandon her on Jakku at, at some point and it, it's a little surprising, I guess, uh, for my credibility. But Well, I also thought it was kind of interesting because we spent – you knew she was going to be someone, right? Because we spent two movies of her, oh, she's a nobody. Her parents were drunks that left her and abandoned her. So you, you had a feeling like, all right, we're not following this girl for no reason. But I, I don't know. I don't know what I expected, but I did not expect that for some reason. I I was with you. I Well, it wasn't that I didn't expect it. I just kind of – I went, oh. All right. That's it didn't have it didn't feel like it had weight to it. I just it just kind of felt like and and I and I totally buy Aaron's explanation about the struggle between the Skywalkers and Palpatines and I think viewing it from that sort of macro level and the the sort of legacy it it makes sense to me but in and I think this is my biggest problem is I I didn't have a a, a big problem with 
the plot itself and what happened in Rise of Skywalker. I thought I, I bought all of that. I was like, this is fun. Sure. It was from a like a writing standpoint that it just sort of felt thrown in. We just like in Force Awakens, but I think worse this time. We zip around everywhere in the first five minutes of the movie. None of the dialogue feels like it has motivation behind it. Um, not from an acting standpoint, which I thought I thought was fine for a Star Wars movie, but just it just it felt thrown together for me. Yeah, I, I think the Last Jedi had the luxury of giving itself time to build stakes between the two, and in a large part, I think Aaron may disagree with this, but it uh, it the Rise of Skywalker relies on the tension and the relationship built in the Last Jedi to have what what momentum and what uh what sort of bulked the story and drama that it gets. It gets from those two from the previous movie because the writing here is very propulsive and moves you forward. But Ray is a Palpatine. You're like, okay. And you immediately have to go on some like chase. And then the next minute it's like Kylo's dead. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> a lot of processing to do here. And, you know, I think the first time I saw it, my first view, I was like, well, it was a fun movie. Wasn't my favorite, but did it get worse? You saw it multiple I saw it three times? times. Oh, did and it get worse? The last time I fell asleep. Oh, which was very unique experience for me. First time <laughs> uh, you know, it just it doesn't hit you as hard as it should have. I think because the writing wasn't quite there for me. It, I get the themes that, that Aaron is lining out. You know, it's like there's you're moving the rest of the story together. Palpatine is pulling the strings. Conceptually, I think those are great ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it does the job that the final part of a nine-part story, sure. it does. It ties everything together and it's falling action to a certain extent and it's kind of – there are so many movies that the last ninth of you wouldn't really have to watch because like all of your answers for the most part, unless it's you know stuff that you happen to be passionate about a character's backstory, you, you wouldn't have to watch it to be like, I got the message of the movie. But – I, but you you can still get something out of it. And if we're looking at the saga of Star Wars like that, maybe you don't have to watch it. I mean, and, and I mean, you you do have to get it to get that entire theme brought back, but you'll live without it. Well, <laughs> I was also kind of thinking that this movie was giving the Star Wars like fandom what they had been like begging for or even like yeah. the the sequel trilogy as a whole like they wanted to see action and they wanted to see how all these people tied together and they wanted it all nice and a, a big bow almost like the game of thrones fandom as well they wanted to see how it came together mind you game of thrones ending was terrible but um <laughs> just in a way that didn't add a whole lot in a way in a way i guess but i think part of it this fandom is so dedicated that even when you look at reviews from this movie it's all over the board some have said like aaron think it's great and it was a good way to wrap everything up i'm not really like i wouldn't consider myself part of the star wars fandom i've seen all the movies but i'm not like a diehard and i as a film watching it as like a subpar fan i was like oh this is like an all right movie but there I just think all the reviews just show how, like, grand and large the fan base is that no one – the whole fan base is never going to be happy with any decision that's made on Star Wars. And I think this sequel trilogy just shows, all right, we've kind of – we've milked all this out. There's there's nothing else to add unless we're just appeasing fans now and adding more into the universe. One of the interesting things to me, especially when it comes to fan base expectations and critical reception – it's like <laughs> the the Marvel movies are a good sort of point of comparison. Uh, and I guess this is a spoiler, so sorry for anybody who hasn't seen the last two. This whole show is a spoiler. So we're going to change the name <laughs> of the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that the first Infinity War movie has huge stakes and consequence, and the second part of it is literally just time travel to undo almost all of the stakes. And critics are like, that's great. And fans are like, this is wonderful. You come to Star Wars and they're like, yeah, but we expect more from you. Like, you can't do that kind of stuff. And I'm guilty of that as having, you know, seen all these movies since I was a kid in the theater with my dad. And, you know, it's like, oh, this is important. But, like, the Marvel stuff is – it's superheroes. Like, whatever. You're like, yeah, but this is just space wizards. Like, <laughs> at some point, it's you got to just take a deep breath and be like, eh, it was a cool movie. Like, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's – I think that's a good point in that – 
that divergence in the way that critics um, and kind of the the way that reviews look between the two franchises, and this isn't just about um, Rise of Skywalker, but all five of the Disney Star Wars films. Um, the, the reviews are more mixed, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's because then then the Marvel movies, which all have you know, I like Rotten Tomato things in the <laughs> high eighties um, or nineties. The reviews are more mixed and I don't think that's because these are worse movies than the Marvel movies. I think it's because they are movies that are deviating from expectations more. Like the Marvel movies, the entire Marvel franchise is about just hitting the expectations of the fans and the movies being – like one my biggest objection why I think that actually the DC movies have been far more interesting movies than the Marvel ones even though most of them aren't as good – of movies is because the Marvel movies are all so tonally identical. They're they're shot the same visually, like the cinematography looks the same. The dialogue all sounds like Joss Whedon. Um, it's the characters are basically all the same, and it's just about hitting expectations with bigger and bigger and bigger special effects. Um, and that's fine. They're in, they're all super entertaining movies, but the Star Wars movies seem to have said we're going to try different things. We're going to try doing a gritty war movie where everyone dies in Rogue One and we don't bring them back. <laughs> you know, we're going Great. to try doing Great. I loved like, Rogue One. <laughs> it was so good. Light adventure fair heist movie in Solo. Um, we're going to try doing our introspective existential thing in Last Jedi, you know, and and it divides the fan base and I think that that is ultimately good and I hope that later movies keep Dividing the fan base because it means that they're trying things out, um, and and as I mean, as a result, like there are I don't like the Last Jedi at all and wish it had been totally different. But I'm glad that they're making movies like that that are upsetting me than than just doing exactly what I want. Even if the reason I like Rise of Skywalker is because it did exactly what I wanted. <laughs> so, do you think Disney added to the franchise, or did you think they made the fan base a little bit more divided? Do you think they added value? Well, they they undeniably have divided the fan base, but that's not a bad thing. The, the fan base has been very insular, and it wasn't always a good thing. Is a little a little too it needs some air. Um, but I think that they've added a lot of good things. I'm not sure that this trilogy knew what it wanted to be before it was made. That being said, I think the notion of a stormtrooper who decides not to be a stormtrooper anymore. Uh, and then finds purpose in being. I love Finn. That could have been its own, whole own movie. I would have watched it. That, yeah, I would watch mm -hmm. just Finn. You know, in, in like a solo or a Rogue One. But and, and introducing larger themes of failure into the into the Star Wars canon is wonderful. Seeing Luke as a character who, despite not being exactly what I wanted to, I marveled at how great it it was to see. Like, wow, this hero didn't end up being a happily ever after character until like the very, very end after he died and became a ghost. Uh <laughs> and man, Mark Hamill, I don't I, it, even as bad as the dialogue was in this movie, he sells it. He's a hundred percent in everything. So so those those elements I think I I really love having been brought in. And you know, the Kylo Ray dynamic is so good and the, that acting is so much better than what we were used to. Uh <laughs> <laughs> is, is great. I mean, you know, I love the prequels and I love them mostly for their world building and the them as a whole, but their component parts aren't Great. Whereas I feel like in this trilogy, the component parts are great and the whole isn't as great. Um, and I'm okay with that because the first movie that they ever made for Star Wars is amazing and you can just sort of carry on after that. <laughs> I hope too that they stick to – that sounds like the plan right now is to – they're done in the sense that we aren't going to – we aren't going to get movies set after this. We don't know what happens to Rey. Um, we don't know what happens to the galaxy and and I hope they stick with that. Um, in part because it, Star Wars is huge and there's lots of other eras to explore and let's go and look at them and they'll be fun. But also because it gets us back to that that ambivalence that we started this conversation with of the the failure of the rebellion once it gets its hands on things. Like you you get the sense my my hopeful vision of where things are as Ray wanders off into the sunset on Tatooine with her yellow lightsaber um, is that 
that status quo maintains of all of these kind of independent planets doing their independent thing and we don't have another attempt at – so we had we had the old republic and it collapsed into empire and we fought off the empire and what did we do? We tried to set up a new republic, a new you know galactic empire of sorts. Um, I, I hope that the takeaway from it is everyone kind of has their own story to tell and they all go off and tell it um, and we we can kind of leave the the institution building alone so that we don't have to repeat this whole story again with another nine movies of fighting off the next bad guys to take over with planet killing weapons. Well, I think a lot a big part of this uh, franchise too is the idea of like legacy um and if they're learning from their past as Aaron is hopeful that they do, <laughs> um they would want their legacy to be like um finding finding your own identity and being seeing how you fit in the Star Wars galaxy and I think part of it is almost that makes the most sense after all of these nine movies that we spent talking about identity and what team are you on? I don't think it's about teams anymore, as the end of the movie suggests, because it's just Ray like going off into the sunset, which is like a callback of sorts. But I think finding that identity is what's been like important throughout the whole Star Wars saga. And it's like Ray found it by claiming herself as a Skywalker. And now there's like not necessarily that there's peace everywhere, but it, that people have like up their place and they identify and have a sort of individual identity that they don't want to come together anymore because they saw they are learning from their history. And that's what I want to see. I want to see all of these individual people telling human stories in this amazing world that we've built, but I don't need to see them try and topple entire regimes. You know, eventually we might get to that and that's really interesting and if they can make it a little bit more complex and not so straightforward, that's fine with me. But I – there's a reason people really like the world that Star Wars has built in um, and I think some of the extended universe is – is still thriving and people are, are writing things that aren't being made into movies is because that that gives them the space the space to tell more human stories uh, on a smaller scale that I think will hopefully eventually we'll get to explore in movies as well. Well, I also think that's also what makes the Star Wars saga so unique in the sense that, yes, we all discuss those holes and there's like weird time gaps and we don't know where all the planets are. But at the same time, that allows for more people in the entertainment space and the in, in a creative space to come up with those stories like like we were just talking about Finn he, Finn was one of my favorite characters from um, the sequel trilogy just partially because you could see he had an internal struggle he was nervous to tell people about how um, he was part of he was a stormtrooper but that at the same time you think he would want to be like yeah I was a stormtrooper trooper but I like took off the mask and I'm I'm me now and I I'm part of I'm part of the resistance and but that wasn't what we got necessarily, that he was more like hesitant and he was scared that they were going to judge him. Um, but I think they left room. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but they left room to suss that out potentially in another story, I hope. But <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think the the sort of dissemination of power in the the galaxy there leaves a lot of room for the storytelling. But also sort of comes back to that point, like what what good ever came from the centralization of power in, in that galaxy? The only large scale projects we had were Starkiller Base and the Death Stars and things that were used to murder a bunch of people. We didn't have like some sort of social good projects. They were just awful, uh, <laughs> like bads. They're not small scale stories. It's all giant threats. And those kind of get boring after a while, as I think that we – learned in previous attempts at telling those tales over and over again. Just off the top of my head, do you think that the, they almost – this might be – this might be short-sighted and service-level analysis, but do you think that the films almost kind of glorify like w the war effort in a certain way that says like the only way that you can make like real effective change is to, you know – resort to trying to overthrow institutions or or is that i i don't know if it necessarily does that but well as a piece of entertainment if you're going if you're looking at your resistance for for instance as okay like our resistance is going to be to like enact this policy or like change in True. small ways towards True. this everyone's going to be like 
Really? We, need, we needed a movie for that? Give me a Star Wars movie <laughs> where community organizers come together to start a social movement <laughs> and uh, we get like municipal laws being passed on, on or something. I don't yeah. know. I'm, obviously, that would be probably a pretty boring movie, but somebody should give it a try. Well, we do actually have that a bit in the Jedi story. I mean, it goes from this large top-down organization to Luke at some point being like, this is done. Like, this is terrible. And then Ray is learning the lesson along with Luke that, no, there's something here of value, but it's more individual. It's more small scale. It's more of a community. Well, also being a Jedi is like being part of an exclusive club at this point. (laughs) 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 And who doesn't want to be a part of that? Where does baby Yoda fit? He fits right (laughs) at the top. He and Babu Frick. They're hanging out together. (laughs) best parts of the entire extended Star Wars universe. Can I just say, if anyone listened to our previous Holiday Favorites episode, puppets make everything better. Don't give me 3D Yoda prequels. Give me puppets. Well, I also, I kind of like that it's a Puppets are also a callback to the original trilogy because, like, just because we've come up with so much more technology and how to make films since then. But I think it's cool that they stuck with that. You're like, yes. (laughs) Real actors playing off one another in the moment. Puppets make everything better. Everybody loves puppets. What about Baby Yoda? And why do you think Baby Yoda has captured everyone's attention with being included in The Mandalorian? Is there something about – I, full disclosure, have not seen any of The Mandalorian yet. It's on my list. But I know Baby Yoda exists. Yes. How could you not at this point? (laughs) I mean that's that's all it is. It's – I mean everybody likes Yoda and then it's Baby Yoda. Yoda and it's cute and it does cute things. Mm, adorable, uh, I yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like he's sipping tea. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think the Mandalorian is a, is a good example of this. I think where it sounds like a lot of us hope that Star Wars goes because it is a small story. At least we think it's a small story. The stakes seem to be rising towards the end, but it still is a pretty small story about a handful of people making their way in the world. They're they're doing it. On the frontier, which is where Star Wars kind of belongs, um, away from the governments. We don't – again, it's another one of these things where we don't know. It's set during the time of the New Republic, but we don't really get a sense of what that looks like in practice except for one really weird scene that I don't think is a spoiler much um, at the end of – the second to last episode or the third to last episode. Um, it, it's the episode where they go and they they try to break a guy out of a prison ship. And there's a subplot about some beacon that one of the New Republic people who are running the prison ship have. And the beacon, once it's turned on, will cause New Republic ships to come and like attack it as a threat. And they sneak the beacon, the Mandalorian sneaks the beacon onto a civilian space station at the end. And the New Republic ships show up and without warning (laughs) blow up. The civilian space station just slaughtering civilians and and I don't know if it was unintentional like the writers weren't really thinking through what this looked like. They were just like, oh, yeah, it's isn't it clever that they put the beacon on here and the bad guys who happened to be on the station died. Um, but but it also seems to you it can tie into this these institutions when they rise back up again, this is where they end up that the the rebellion ended up the aggressors against the very people that it had been trying to protect. And so if if what we get from this is the abandonment of those attempts, um, then that's good. And if these are the kinds of stories that we keep telling, then well, that's you, positive. Do you also think that that's kind of what at the end of Rise of the Skywalker was alluding to when Ray Ray had the opportunity, spoiler alert, this whole show, um, to become like the Sith, Sith Empress. Um, and I think it was – it could have gone either way inconceivably. But if – for instance, if she would have been like, OK, yeah, now I'm going to be Empress. I'm going to take over for my grandfather. And then we could have gotten that ending that was more like cyclical or like, oh, we're going to go through all of this again. Like they had the opportunity to do that and didn't I think is also – is very poignant about – what they pictured, like like Aaron was saying earlier about the family dynamics ending in a like a tied up way, but what they pictured as this is like the best way moving forward because they could have easily made her the Sith Empress. It would have been a plot twist, and the, the fandom would have freaked out. But 
it would have gotten, like Aaron said, it would have been cyclical right back to where we started with um, so one individual having mass amounts of power. And then we're going to have to need another rebellion and so forth. Well, or it could have ended, I mean, in that there's quick shots at the end of people celebrating on planets where we saw the Ewoks, which I guess makes the, the Endor Holocaust not canon, which is a little bit disappointing. Um, but they could have shown one of Ray standing in a Senate chamber accepting the new chancellorship as as leader, the inheritor of kind of Leia's role. Um but they didn't. They showed her walking away from everything, like the last kind of epicenter of Jedi power, Jedi and family, dynasty power, which is always what's ruled in Star Wars, just taking that legacy, burying it in the sand and walking away. Which I, I thought was a perfect way to end it. And also I'm I'm blanking on which movie ended similarly with Luke, right? And it was like you saw the two sun you saw the two stars and the sun was setting. Which movie I was mean, that? I mean that's in A New Hope. Was that A New Hope? Planet. Okay. I don't know if it ends that way, but it starts that way. It starts oh, that way. Yeah. One then, of them. Then it's in um is it Revenge of the Sith? Yeah. yeah. Drop okay. off the baby. Were there any were there any other callbacks that you saw, like or symmetries that you saw from other movies, um, particularly in the Rise of Skywalker that came up before? Yeah, I mean we have the I think most of them were a bit jarring to me, but they're intended as fan service. So when they work for people, they work very well. The Han uh, Han's medal from the original ceremonies handed over to Chewbacca. Woo, love Chewie. That's right. And and <laughs> Leia ends up when she dies is like clutching it, which was a little odd to me, but you know, they had to work around the, the unfortunate passing of Carrie Fisher. I just – I thought they did a really good job with that. Like I was – I went in thinking this is going to be – because I knew they were going to do it with old footage. They weren't going to like digitally recreate her and I went in thinking like this is going to end up being really awkward. And there were – every now and then there was one where it was like the line she was saying didn't seem to exactly fit with the response that was given. Um, but on the whole, I thought it worked remarkably well. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, a tough sled, and I think they made it work. It, you can tell that it's happening, uh, but it's it's not bad. Um, it's not, you know, the Transformers movies where they're trying to act against the thing that's not there. They're looking the wrong ways, and you're like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then you have callbacks in the throne room scene um, where Ray is being challenged by the Emperor to to turn, and she's like, "Your friends are dying out there," and like opens up the portal in the. Millions of feet of rock somehow. Uh, special force powers. They're pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and they're they're fun. There there were a lot in this movie that were it bogged it down for me a little bit, but some very cool ones. I like seeing Wedge. Wedge was great, and little little nuggets from um from the prequels where they're speaking at the end, saying Ray rise. You know that was cool to hear, and including some fan favorites from the the cartoons of like Ahsoka Tano and. Kanan from the Rebel show. And those are all fun things to have in there. Uh, and that one actually got me. I was like, yes, finally here. I, <laughs> I was really I'm, hoping I'm for a, a Lego Star Wars callback. <laughs> yeah. They didn't include that. <laughs> <laughs> those are really popular now, too. <laughs> yeah, because they're great games. I One thing that I thought was interesting about this, and it's just, it's like a, a relatively minor, I don't have like a long discussion on this, was if given that Ray takes the Skywalker name and is the last. Skywalker as she walks off into the sunset and going back to episode one and Anakin, that, that throwaway line of Anakin like there was no father. It was like an immaculate conception. Uh, that The Skywalker lineage is bookended, like begins and ends with women. That is, is it Shmi? Is that the name of um, his mother? That Shmi is the first Skywalker and Ray is the last, which I kind of enjoyed. I think that is the first ever analysis that called Rise of Skywalker a pro-feminist film. Because <laughs> <laughs> most people are like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, even when Disney took over, I, I was reading something a few weeks ago. When Disney took over Star Wars, they had like the intention, um, good intention, of adding more females to the cast as well as more um, more diversity in general. Just because the, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy tended to be a, a lot of white people. Um, and I think they... I think they did a pretty decent job of that, to be honest. In general, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there are some times where they made some choices where it felt kind of thrown in. The the same-sex kiss that happens does kind of look like it was 
uh, when the two when they're celebrating at the very very end after the the big battle just from the way the shot is composed and the two women rush and and embrace each other it does look very much kind of thrown in, either I, not necessarily for fan service or easy to be taken out yeah, for certain markets. Yeah, that was how I took it because they pulled it out for China. Yeah, and and the Middle East I saw as well. So I, you know, they're still at that point kind of trying to. I mean, sure, they're trying to do something that that market might want, but at a certain point, I'm still kind of like, are you really being you know, more diverse? It does kind of just seem like they. It's it's tokenism to an extent yeah or sacrificing quality there are just so- and there are character there are lead characters that are much more diverse in general but you know i i'm i'm hesitant to be like good job disney you you really did it there so though we are coming from a point where in the original trilogy uh one of the pilots i believe it's an a-wing pilot is a uh, actress playing the role and they have a voiceover of a man instead. So she's entirely erased from the film. You know, the squishy helmet, you can't really right. tell. It's like, right. oh, cool, another guy. Like, there's two women in that movie. Right. So it's come uh, certainly come yes. a very long yeah. way. So credit, credit, credit is due. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. High fives all around. We, we talked about dividing the fan base um, and fan reactions. And I will say that one of my favorite parts of the fan reactions to these movies has been the, like – just watching the people get so mad that there's girls in my Star Wars <laughs> yes. now. Yes. Or there's like like what those black stormtroopers? They were never black. You know, like the, the kind of weird like yeah. um I just because because that sort of like that sort of fandom of like it, it, the it's the weird disconnect they have of on the one hand they're like, God, these people, you know, like why do these people care so much about seeing someone who looks like them in, you know, in the movies shouldn't they just like the stories? Um, but then when when diverse characters are introduced, they just flip out with all these. Right. It's like you know, it's not authentic to the lore or whatever. Or, you know, <laughs> girls couldn't really do that. And hey, um, and I just like I get their tiny hands couldn't hold a lightsaber. Yeah, like that sort of. And so I just I have ever since Disney started, and you know, right off the bat, these responses came in. I took a lot of pleasure in watching those people oh, just yes. get really angry and throw fits because it's so ridiculous and it's such a toxic part of fandom. And I just hope that Disney keeps with both the Marvel movies because they mentioned there should be like a transgender character in an upcoming one. And because representation matters, mm-hmm. people, like it does. Like we all – these these are all about – like the reason children get into this stuff and they get into the comic books and all that is like – you imagine yourself in it and you want to identify with it. And you identify with these characters and these heroes and you like love their adventures and you want to see what happens to them. And people who are like you are really important. And so having that is great. And and if it drives away that portion of the fan base who are just so upset that there are people who don't look like them in their movies or like there's a there's a girl doctor who – oh my god. <laughs> like the more we can drive those people out, the better. Thanks for listening. What did you think of the new Star Wars movie? And what's your favorite film in the Star Wars saga? Let us know on Twitter. You can follow the show and get updates about future episodes at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Tess Terrible and me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>